ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. After 30 years, native title has been granted for a massive tract of land in the goldfields of Western Australia. The determination was a victory for the Wongatha people and they hope it will inspire other groups to take their claims to the federal court. We made it, basically. There's so many Aboriginal groups in, in this country that don't go through the whole process. You know, they get, get told, no, this is not going to happen. I want the rest of the country to know about it. I want them to know, keep fighting, keep fighting, because one day you will get there. And what's on Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's list in his up-and-coming trip to China? I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese heads to China tomorrow, the first Australian leader to visit since Malcolm Turnbull in 2016 and 50 years to the week since former PM Gough Whitlam visited Beijing, establishing diplomatic ties. So what's expected to come from the visit, given how turbulent the relationship has been with China in recent years? You might remember under the Turnbull government, you had the ban on Chinese company Huawei and Australia's 5G network. There's also been long-standing tensions over Australia's foreign interference laws. And then, of course, hostility over calls from the former Morrison government for an investigation into the origins of COVID-19, which resulted in heavy tariffs for Australian farmers and producers. But recently, these tensions seem to have thawed. Our China trade specialist, Professor Ben Lyons, is the Director of Rural Economies Centre of Excellence at the University of Southern Queensland, and he joins me now. Before we get into it, Ben, where are you? What's the story? Oh, I'm just sitting back in Toowoomba after being in Western Queensland, Sinead, out at St George, which was a great trip. A bit dry out there and in here as well, so we're just getting a bit of rain, which is very welcome. Looking at the Prime Minister's visit, so he heads off um, tomorrow. What do you think this is going to mean for both countries? Oh, I think it's a very good step in a, in a you know a, a positive direction with the, the sort of thawing or warming of the relationship. We, as as you said in your um, introduction, you know we have had a rocky five year, four or five years, and um, it's a long time ago since the heady days of free trade agreements and you know Malcolm Turnbull's last visit in 2016 when I, I was in China at that time and. Um, you know, it was all systems go from both sides or the, you know, the business and the industry of both sides looking, um, you know, Chinese investment into Australia, Australian companies looking to develop markets in China from education through to agriculture. So, so yeah, and that's that. And for a variety of reasons, that was, you know, that you outlined, it's been a, been a bit of a tough period. Um, and China's going through some internal changes, which, um, which are also affecting that. Ben, you know, the, there's talk of this might bring it back to more normal relations or but from what you're saying there, that kind of time has passed. The normal has passed. Is it more about stabilising things? Oh, I think so. We've still got a lot of, you know, even back in those days, we still had a ways to go with trade barriers, um, non-tariff trade barriers, really. Like I know they brought that tariff in on barley, which has since been removed. And the, the, the Australian wine industry has had a very tough time of it. Um, it's interesting and, you know, Associate Professor Scott Waldron at UQs has this theory that it really, the things that are impacted most are um, are raw 
raw goods um, or no, sorry, raw goods are not intermediate products that are processed in China are less affected or not as affected. It's the finished products that are typically Australian beef or Australian wine that ha are having a tougher time recently. And that's because we think that's partly because there's a lack of um, advocacy on the Chinese side. When you have wool or barley, you know, you had the Brewer Chinese Brewing Association supporting um, the import of Australian barley. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing that that's why those are getting through and, and wine and the other sort of finished products are having a tougher time of it. And and also with the beef, um, there's some there's some consumer economy, sort of retail economy sort of factors there that are really impacting the spend. So do you think those two products that you're talking about, beef and wine, are they going to be top of the Prime Minister's list of things that he'd like to achieve while visiting to China to improve things for those markets? Or has he other things well, in I mind? Yeah, I, I think the wine has a bit because it's been such a successful export, um, and it was really um, becoming very popular on a cost, um, you know, just a, a really welcome product. And um, in in the Chinese consumer from first tier cities right the way through to third and fourth tier cities, and that sort of developing of a sort of middle class consumer. Um, you know, that had a lot of upside going for it and it's really impacted and it's impacted other markets in, in a way as well. But Australia particularly has been the most impacted in that. And it's the only, I think it's the only tariff that's really had an impact in the Chinese sort of measures that, that we've been talking about in the in the previous few years. So tell me about these trips. So when you were in China, when Malcolm Turnbull visited, do you know what happens, you know? Who travels with the Prime Minister? What's the story? How does it work? Oh, well, typically there's a bit of an industry delegation that goes along to, and typically you'd have the, the heads of representatives or companies um, that represent those those industries or a large part of those industries. So you have the, the iron ore, the mining crowd are, are very big. There's some, some, you know, mining and resources, but then agriculture is represented either by the NFF um, and by National Farmers Federation and bodies like that. And they have sidelined, like there'll be the sort of talk with the leader and the presidents and the prime minister, but then there'll be industry to industry and, and minister or, you know, portfolio to portfolio discussions. Um, and it's quite organised. Um, there'll be side events with, you know, Australians and Chinese industry associations that happen, dinners and so forth, where... Um, and those are an important part of that trip. Um, they're quite big celebrations. Obviously, you mentioned the 50 years since Gough Whitlam first went over to China with Stephen Fitzgerald and really was, you know, following the steps of Nixon and Kissinger. Um, and that that's a big deal. I've been there for the 30th and 40th and, you know, I'm not there for the 50th celebrate anniversary of that, that event. But that is a big deal. It shows a sign of commitment to the relationship. And there's been a lot of um, goodwill born sort of human to human, you know, Australian to Chinese person. And we have a lot of, you know, Chinese in our society and there's big contingent of Australians living in China. The other thing, though, is that the Prime Minister has just got, come back from a visit to the United States, and I believe he'll be there again. How will that temper the, temper the visit? Will that be significant to the Chinese government, do you think? I don't think so. It's normally not mentioned. I think um, they talk about, you know, that's another relationship. China has, you know, the number one trading partner of 123 other countries other than Australia. Um, so they understand that we have other relationships and we have a, a cultural and historical tie to the US and the UK. Um, and so it doesn't really get mentioned. It, 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 not directly anyway. It might be in, there might be an inference to it. Um, they'll really focus on we want to be, you know, a global leader. We're a global superpower. 
um, this is our position. We want to be friendly and be very pragmatic. They're quite, it's quite a pragmatic and there's no controversy, if you like. There's no sort of uh, faux pas or any, you know, aggression. In fact, the last few years when you had Chinese diplomats being quite aggressive and overt in their criticisms of Australia or other governments, that's pretty much, and a sort of a wolf warrior, they were called in China. That's, wolf warrior, that's did you of, say? Yeah, that sort of wolf, wolf diplomacy. Yeah. Um, that's really been the only time in recent years that we've seen that in, in, in China's sort of history since the Communist Party took power in 1949. So explain that term, the wolf warrior. So that's when somebody kind of goes out on their own? Well, no, it's more about being standing up for China. Um, that's a that's a common term. Uh, you know, it's this isn't my real area of expertise, <laughs> so I'm probably I'm probably you know um, on unga- shaky ground for a little old economist and Chinese speaker. Um, but it it is a you know it, it hasn't been a tone that's been prevalent before because there have been periods of like you know the Belgrade bombings in the late '90s. Um, some anti-Japanese sentiment over, you know, similar to the Philippines and that territory in the in, the, in those oceans over islands and and territory disputed territories, and you do have these rising sentiments of Chinese pride and angst about, you know, not being getting the recognition that they think they deserve. So that wolf warrior was sort of an expression of that, but in a sort of official way, and it was sort of condoned, but not not you know but the fact that those people weren't sacked or brought home like they may have been in the past it sort of meant that it was condoned by the leaders the top leadership and another positive step was Australian journalist Cheng Li a friend of yours was recently released after three years in a Chinese prison obviously a great relief for her and her family and friends but in terms of symbolically for the relationship between the two countries but what do you think of that? I think it's one of the most positive things, both for Cheng Lei and especially her family. Um, but it is it is a very positive sign. It was, as with many things with the Chinese legal system, it's very difficult to understand or see, you know, get any answer or clarity on what exactly someone can be charged with or how long they may be held in custody for. And that's part of the biggest frustration and getting access to them, how well they're looked after. It's it's not exactly the most pleasant place to be, but that is that is a very big step in the right way for us, for Australia and obviously for Cheng Lei. So it was wonderful news, there's no doubt. Professor Ben Lyons, who's the Director of Rural Economy Centre of Excellence at the University of Southern Queensland, joining me from the side of the road while he's driving across the country. Thank you very much for chatting to Australia Wide. No problem. Thanks, Sinead. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. A 30-year struggle for native title rights has come to an end in remote Western Australia. The Federal Court this week recognised the Nyalpa Pernicu claim group as the traditional owners of an area that spans more than 30,000 kilometres across the northern goldfields. The determination was a victory for those Wangatha people like Murray Stubb, who's been fighting for it for more than two decades. Julia Pertolio has this story from the goldfields. Finally, now Wangatha Bini got our uh, Look, it's, it's enjoyment that we've actually got our land given back to us. It's so sad it's taken us 30 years. In the meantime, we've lost a lot of elders and if you have a look within the, the group, there's not a lot of elders left. And that's the saddest thing. It's taken this long to be given our land back. The oldest person on the claim group is actually Murray Stubbs' mother. 
At 90, Laurel Cooper has waited a very long time to see her native title rights finally recognized. I'm overwhelmed because uh, I've been here a long time and I used to be here before I went into the mission to, be, uh, to learn school. I was there before that, roaming around. So I, I'm on my own now. All my friends have gone. Laurel's brother is there in spirit. I wish he was here to see this happen today. But she can share this happy day with her sons, including Mari. I'm privileged to be here. Um, it's a really big event. Now we can move on without worrying about that struggle that we've had for the last, probably in the courts, 20 plus years to get to this point. The Nyalva Bini claim was filed only four years ago, but it covered much of the same area as a former Wangatha native title claim, which was filed in 1999 but dismissed in 2007 after a trial. That came as a huge blow to many of those involved, who had given lengthy oral evidence. Mr. Stubbs, who is a court officer, said the 2007 decision created lasting damage. I think that decision was wrong because back then uh, we as the Wangatha people came together as one and one big claim group and the state government actually backed that to happen because back in the day there was around about, I think it was about 25, 26 claims overlapping and to bring us together to stop overlapping and come as one, that was an achievement itself, and we went backwards. So for the last, I'm taking a guess, I think it's about 15 to 16 years ago that the decision for Wangatha was dismissed, which means it then divided the country up into like a piece of cake. So now, instead of having one big claim that we're all on, we're now going on three, four or five different claims and that's not fair because that's causing internal um, arguments. The Goldfields is a resource-rich region and Mr Stubbs hopes the determination will also mark a shift in the relation with mining companies. Since the judge dismissed the former Wangatha claim, the mining companies have not paid their due respect in regards to the mining agreements. So now that consent determination is being handed down, they will treat us with the respect that they should and we'll be coming back to collect the money that they owe on past agreements and moving forward and try to make decisions and use our money to help our people grow. And there are others who want to protect the future of this land and its people, including Wangatha traditional owner Raima Morrison. As a 10-year-old, Raima was forced to leave her country, and this day is particularly emotional for her. It's amazing because we, were, we weren't part of our land growing up, you know, me and my siblings, because we were taken away. And um, to be able to come back... Um, and be part of everybody and, and just to be embraced because I know who you are. I remember when you were taken away and, and we were sad. The people were sad when we had to leave. So coming back here and being a traditional owner is one of the most powerful things that, it, that could happen to an Aboriginal person. That's, that's, that's what makes my heart beat today. Today we belong. Today our land is ours, you know. It's always been ours but the fight... The struggle. It's been a long battle, 
but Miss Morrison wants all indigenous people in Australia to take notice of the Nyalbabini's victory. We made it, basically. There's so many Aboriginal groups and in this country that don't go through the whole process. You know, they get, get told, no, this is not going to happen. And for us to achieve today, I want the rest of the country to know about it. I want them to know, keep fighting, keep fighting, because one day you will get there. Julia Bertolio talking to one of the people who are celebrating their native title rights, which have been recognised after 30 years. You're listening to Australia Wide. It's a species that I have been fighting for. Growing up in the bush is such a special thing. So when the rain does come, we've, we've got a few numbers. Got a... never come? Put a feather in your cap. ABC Radio. There are lots of places across regional Australia where at least once a year a massive influx of people arrive into town for a big one-off event. Take, for example, Diggers and Dealers in Kalgoorlie and WA, the Tamworth Country Music Festival, the Parks Elvis Festival and Beef Week, which happens in Rockhampton in Queensland. These events are a big boost for the regional economy, but some locals are getting wise to it and choosing to use their homes as a side hustle to make a bit of extra cash on the side. Karen Wilson has this story from Rockhampton. Steph Roddick saw an opportunity she couldn't pass up. A friend put their home up to rent during Beef Week in Rockhampton, an event being held in May of next year. Her friend ended up making a pretty penny with those attending scrambling to find accommodation. So, Mrs. Ruddock rented her house out for just the one week and will make $9,000 for the effort. She only wants to open her home for that one event, but the money is a cash cow she needed to renovate her home. Yeah, it's a lot of work to then, you know, obviously because it's my home that I'm living in, you know, to then adjust all of that to then have somebody. And that was why knowing that beef is a week long, I would only want to do it if it was at least like a minimum of five nights that they were going to be there for. Mm -hmm. So for people who are just weekenders or anything like that, it wouldn't be worth all of the preparation of, you know, taking personal things out and and setting up if it wasn't for an extended period of time. Yapoon-based realtor Sarah Mayers specialises in holiday rentals. She says more homeowners are jumping on the trend of renting out their homes to make some extra cash during tight times. It's actually become um, very popular. Um, I think it all sort of began um, at COVID, when COVID was um, in full swing. People couldn't travel outside of Australia. They couldn't travel outside of their state. Um, They chose to come north to Yapoon, um, and there was a, a big demand for holiday accommodation during that period. And it just seems to have stuck. And these houses that are, are, are owner-occupiers, are they letting their own houses out while they go somewhere else or stay with somebody yeah. else? Yeah. We're finding a lot of um, people from down south have also bought um, retirement homes up here. And they are not always ready to retire right now. So they'll finish their business, finish whatever they're doing, wherever they live. And in the meantime will make them some money to help with the mortgage and the rates and that sort of thing. Another another group of people um, that we do have quite a bit are people that are on long service leave or they're on, you know, they're doing their lap around Australia or they're three months overseas holiday, don't want the house sitting there empty. So we look after it just for the period of time that they're away. 
and that of course then helps with the mortgage and the rates and also someone's in the house it's not sitting empty for three months or six months it's got people coming and going the money is great but welcoming paying guests into your home does have its risks kate davies from the insurance council of australia says your home insurance might not be enough to cover you if you're renting your property out as a holiday rental it's important to have the right insurance in place first and foremost so that you can protect your home from any damages and of course theft however what most people don't realize is that the standard home and contents insurance typically excludes coverage for short-term rentals so if a homeowner is planning on renting out their home for the week say for beef week, it is important that they purchase a separate holiday rental insurance policy. Karen Wilson reporting there from Rockhampton. There's nothing quite like the spectacle and energy of a rodeo. Watching grown men and women being thrown off a bull is quite something. It's quite terrifying, actually. But if you've been to an Australian rodeo lately, you may have noticed a new bull in the chute. They're mini, fluffy, and they're perfect for kids. Mini bull riding is taking off at rodeos across the country. At the tender age of 12, Ronan Myoski flew from a small Queensland town to Texas to show the world how Aussies do it down under. Abby Halter has this story. Potty calf riding at rodeos is now in the past. Mini bulls are all the rage. The Kama and smaller bulls are perfect for the younger generation to learn the sport before they get on the big bulls. Mini bulls have never been more popular and now an Aussie kid has flown across the globe to the United States and competed at the World Championship Miniature Bull Riding Finals. Ronan Mayoski is just 12 years old and from the small Queensland town of Serena, so repping Australia bucking mini bulls in Texas is a pretty big deal. But he says he would have ranked higher if he didn't get distracted during his ride. I was riding my bull, looked up in the stands and saw this cute girl and just fell off. (laughs) Put it in, put it in. Texas is pretty different than Queensland. It's just another world over there. It was pretty good to make friends and make a bit of family over there and just have a bit of fun. I started bull riding when I was eight years old. And how did you get into it? Uh, My brother started riding and I started to really look at him and start wanting to do it. What do you enjoy about it? Just the adrenaline rush. It gets me going, makes me feel good about what I'm going to do. I ride all over Queensland and uh, New South Wales. I ride Townsville, Serena... Uh, Mount Isa, Nebo, and yeah, just anywhere. It's definitely a good sport if you know what you're doing and you've got to like, have a bit of strength and just a bit of anger in you. Ronan's older brother, Boyce Myoski, flew over to Texas to watch and cheer him on from behind the chute. What it feels like to be on a ball is uh, it's a bit hard to describe and I, I think that's why people um, that like it do it because it's not for everyone, but... It's just, it's a whole other feeling. There's nothing you can compare it to because you're on something that um, that could definitely kill you. What was it like seeing your brother compete? 
Oh yeah, it's. I'd, I'd, I wanted to go over there only because I'd, I'd never want to miss that opportunity. Um, it was good, um, good seeing him over there and just to be there and get accepted into that um, sort of thing is just a big step for the younger fellas. Is he better than you? Yeah, my little brother is way better than me. <laughs> How does that make you feel? Well, I guess I, I know it'll be a world champ one day, so I guess if I'm there, if I'm not on him, I'm at least behind him and at least I could say I made it. Mini Bull contractor and founder of the Australian Mini Bull Championships, Matthew Doick, first saw the Bulls at a PBR in the US, and he's now convinced Australia's biggest rodeos to let kids get bucked off Mini Bulls. The age groups are sort of split between 7 to under 12 and 12 and under 15. And they recently were at the Mount Isa Rodeo, is that right? That's right, that's right. Um, Warwick on the weekend. So that's the two biggest rodeos in the country of now. You know, I had mini bulls at them. Uh, mainly in sort of, sort of central Queensland, southeast Queensland is where most of the rodeos are, but there is some contractors in the Northern Territory and there is a couple in New South Wales. Founder of the Australian Mini Bull Championships, Matthew Doak, ending that story from Abby Halter. And that's all from the Australia-wide team for this week. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely weekend. Cheerio. Listen.